Hello, everyone. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. It's one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And this week, we are continuing on our list of the best horror B movies of the 1980s. And this week, specifically, we will be doing the top five B horror movies of 1981. Uh, Frank, so how did you feel so far about um, what we're doing here? I enjoy it. Yeah. I, mean, I like going back and watching these movies again. Um, I, you know. Full disclosure, I've seen most of these movies multiple times, so it's sometimes surprising like how I feel about them watching them again. Um, I certainly do not have the same enthusiasm for some of them I did as a kid, but I mean, I still think that, you know, the five movies represent what I think are best about that year in terms of horror for various reasons. So it's been enjoyable. Okay. Um, I'm still waiting until we get to like maybe the mid 80s myself just because there's I think this early 80s run is frustrating okay frustrating I think is the word it's because you have bad opinions but (laughs) it's it's all right I think a lot of these movies lack the fun that kind of come around the time of maybe 84 85 agreed I mean it's a much more horror comedy towards the mid late 80s I mean, the comedy element is, the fun element is much more prevalent in the mid to late 80s, I think. And there's plenty sure. of movies that we'll talk about that have that element to them. Yeah. But these yeah. are much like, I think the directors were taking it much more seriously in the early 80s. Sure. Uh, so you wanted to, and I don't think you've ever done this before, uh, have an honorable mention that you wanted to talk about tonight? Yes. Yeah, so there's one movie that I really love that I didn't know didn't really know how I could include it, because it's not really, like, a great movie. It's just, it's, to your point, it's a really fun movie. Um, it's called The Monster Club. It's an anthology film um, that kind of mimics, like, the Amicus slash Hammer um, anthology films of, like, the 70s, but in, like, more tongue-in-cheek manner. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but basically it involves this uh, horror writer played by David Carradine who gets kind of like abducted by a vampire played by Vincent Price and taken to this exclusive club that's only for monsters and is told these stories about how monsters have intermingled with the human world throughout like time um really cheesy movie it's got some ridiculous songs in it uh, one played by um, UB40 I think and then just some I don't know they're, they're really memorable but they're like laughable at the same time um like most most anthologies it's kind of uneven um there's not many like horror anthologies that are like i think maybe asylum being one of the only examples i can think of but that straight through are just like top notch but it has one segment which is one of my favorite maybe my favorite anthology horror segment like ever which is um called the ghouls about a film producer who's looking for uh like sets for a horror movie and happens upon this, like, hidden abandoned town in England that's populated by ghouls um, who have are going hungry because they've eaten all the graves in the town. Um, really well filmed. It's got this very, like, nightmarish quality to it in the way that, like, the scenes in the town are filmed where it's just kind of, like, soft focus all the time and, like, everything feels, like, really slow and, like, the protagonist like can't quite escape like the impending doom and it's got a really cool twist to it where you know you think the guy's gotten away but then he gets taken back to the town to get eaten um really so it was an elvira movie 
in the um like the late eighties, like remember Elvira the yeah. Mistress of the Dark or whatever. Right. Um, it was one of her like things that she they branded under her thing where like she introduced oh, okay. it right. and then would talk about it throughout. Um, which is how I first saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's available, I think, streaming on a couple of the yeah, like Tubi, I think. Maybe well, Tubi, yeah, it. it's 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 definitely available for on Tubi, which um is a free service yeah. and has tons of horror movies for people that like horror movies and uh yeah, and then it's available for rental in different places. Yeah, and it's it's weird because it still has that I don't know. Like, it, it's a British movie, and so you had the video nasties in the um, the 80s where British filmmakers were really, like, hesitant to put a lot of gratuitous violence or nudity or, like, make movies that were, like, daring. So they always had to be kind of tongue-in-cheek, which is, I think, why the movie's filmed the way it is. But it's it's fun to watch, and it's, I mean, for as brief as it is, I think it's really enjoyable. Um Again, like one of my favorite movies as a kid, one of my favorite horror movies, and really, the ghoul segment is honestly affecting as a, like as a vignette or whatever. Yeah, I, if I had to recommend one segment out of the three of them, it would be that segment. I thought that was pretty well done, uh, considering the time period. I thought like it was really well done. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like a top notch like Tales from the Dark Side episode or Absolutely. Friday the Thirteenth the series episode. Like it's one of those yeah. things where you would have seen it on randomly on tv on a saturday night and it would have actually kind of like scared you a little bit i think yeah. as like a kid so but really again like i couldn't really put it in the top five just because i don't know how much like influence it has but i really i i love those anthology movies so it was it's really close to my yeah. heart yeah i and i know we talked off air about you saying that they kind of undercut some of the horror movies in britain with comedy for the very reason the video nasties and stuff like right. that and the the censorship also just because on. of their own sensibilities i think that like I mean, even the Hammer stuff and the Amicus stuff and, um, you know, like the heyday of British horror, so like the mid-60s through like the late 70s, there's not much that's like completely invests itself in the idea of being a horror movie. You know, there's, it's always very like staged looking. There's a lot of, even like the best stuff like um, Conqueror Worm or Captain Kronos, and Captain Kronos has some silly stuff in it. Um, maybe the most serious like British horror movie, like To the Devil a Daughter, is one of the few that actually like fully owns the horror aspect of it. And maybe like Satanic Rites of Dracula, which is like a later Hammer movie. But um, I can't remember what episode it was. Was that the top five horror movies of the seventies that we talked about? The one with the psychiatrist and the two sisters and the mother and father. I forget the name of the movie already. I've seen it twice now. Right now, I don't remember. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know. The old woman that was murdering people and the father was covering. Oh, it Frightmare. Up. Frightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, that, yeah, yeah. that's Pete, British too. Pete Walker, though, is like more of like an outsider filmmaker okay. in that time period. Yeah. I mean, that was like willing to be more daring, I think, and took yeah. his movies like a little a little more seriously, even though there's some comedy elements to him. But yeah, all I was going to say was the about the comedy aspect of it was I just thought it. I thought it made the movie as a whole very uneven at times, even though the segments themselves took themselves a little bit more seriously. And it really, like... And I thought they were much more effective than the interstitial things in the Monster Club itself with Vincent Price. There's there's a segment where there's a woman stripping on stage that ends up stripping down to her skeleton. 
to a song called I'm a Stripper, yeah. which is one of the most, like, it was surreal. A, it was and, a funny concept. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really funny. Yeah. Like, the, the song itself, like, is so earnest about, right. like, I'm, I'm stripping. Right. I don't know. It's it's, but it's worth watching if you have a, if you have a little bit of time to kill. Yeah, I still think that movie is better than one of these movies. <laughs> <Jude> <laughs> That's because you're wrong. <clears throat> okay, you ready to jump in? Front? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, so before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that you can contact us through our Facebook page at Two Guys Five Movies. You can also contact us through our Gmail account, Two Guys Five Movies at gmail.com. It's the numbers two and five, Two Guys Five Movies at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for different genres we could do that you would want to hear, <clears throat> so if we're jumping right in, we're going to start with number five on the list, which is 1981's The Prowler, directed by Joseph Zito, starring Vicki Dawson. Christopher Goutman and a small performance, although heavily billed by Lawrence Tierney. <clears throat> it has a 67% from the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 79% from audiences. Frank, did you want to tell us a little bit about the plot of this movie and what you think about it? Um, so The Prowler starts in like the late 40s. Um, Just so you know, I've been really waiting to hear you explain the premise of this movie. <laughs> The plot starts in the late 40s with G.I.s returning from World War II. Um, one of the G.I.s has gotten a Dear John letter from his girlfriend. Um, his girlfriend is like a debutante at this small college. And I guess it's like New Jersey or something is where it takes place. Yes. Um, no. Is that right? I think it was... No, it takes place in a small town in um, California, California. But it was filmed, filmed in New Jersey. Jersey. Right, yeah. okay. It doesn't matter where it takes place. So... It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, the woman, the Jilty or whatever, I guess, and her new boyfriend are at this um, college like spring dance thing. Um, they go off to make out um, and are like summarily murdered um, by some unseen assailant who then places a rose in her hand and leaves. Um, flash forward to the early 80s. Where this college is again, like for the first time in those 40 years or 30 years, is going to have this spring spring ball thing. Um, everyone's excited for the ball, although like some of the older people are sort of hesitant about letting them do it again, including the sheriff of the town. Who, even though he's afraid that like bad things might happen, decides he's going to go on a fishing trip because you know that he's got to get his fishing in, which is one of my favorite lines in the movie. Mm. Like, you know, I got to fish. Um, immediately people start getting murdered by someone in, uh, old school, like GI, um, combat fatigue outfit with, um, a face mask and like a hood that's pulled like close around their face wearing like a, a army helmet. Um, turns out that it's the sheriff that was murdering them all along. Um, spoilers. Right. Well, I mean, like, what does it matter? I guess. Um, I don't really know, like, what else to say. I mean, that's pretty much the story. Yeah, I just want to... It's a very clunky opening to me. That's why I won... But it's, you did it pretty well. So I, I, I it, thought that... I thought that the opening and trying to get to 
the mystery of the movie with that opening was interesting, but I just thought it was like this weird kind of shifting of different time yeah. periods. Well, it's strange because it starts with like the newsreel footage and yeah. GIs returning from the front to find that there were Which I loved. And then to go... So one of the things that I really like about this movie a lot, and one of the reasons why this makes the list instead of something like The Burning or My Bloody Valentine, both of which I think are good movies from the same year, is... There's this weird Happy Days slash American Graffiti-esque feel to the way the movie's filmed. Mm -hmm. Like where the lighting, you know, the way they film like the the scenery, the way that like they film the women. um, It's just got a very like, even though like it's not entirely wholesome, it's got a very wholesome feel to it. Mm -hmm. And I really like the juxtaposition of I love supernatural horror, but there's something to be said about the idea of, like, a person. There's nothing supernatural about it. No, it's not even, like, overly psychological. It's just a person is killing other people. That's really, like, effective to me. And I I think, honestly, because... I mean, how many deaths are in this movie? Like, maybe... Like, taking out the initial two of the couple getting murdered, like, in the prologue, like, five? Four or five? Yeah. Yeah. So, a lot of it is about, like, the stalking aspect of it. And I really think that it's got, like, some effective... When, um... What's the woman's name? Pam or whatever? Like, the main... I don't know. Like, the final girl or whatever from the, the movie... When she's being stalked through that house, when she goes back to change her clothes, yeah, it doesn't feel like like supernatural, where like the guy's moving too fast or is in places that he couldn't be, mm-hmm. or has any kind of like extra advantage other than the fact that he just wants to murder someone and that person wants to get away. Now. I think that she's maybe, like, one of the stupidest characters and, like, certainly incompetent at opening doors and figuring out, like, how latches work and stuff. So maybe that's kind of stretched. But I really feel like there's definitely, like, a palpable sense of dread of, like, her trying to get away and the the dawning realization that this person is trying to kill her and has murdered, like, people that she cares about. Um, weird weird ending like the fact that the sheriff is the killer and i don't know like the whole like hallucination thing at the end where she thinks the guy's like grabbing him yeah bad ending right it's there's a lot a lot of 80s horror movies and a lot of horror movies in general that know how to get you to a certain point and have no idea how to finish and i think it's like a big problem with a lot of horror films the michael Crichton ending Right. It's like, oh, we've got to end this somehow, so let's just end it like this. Um, But the getting to that point with the Prowler specifically in terms of, like, the slasher genre, I think is fantastic. Like, I I just, I love the way it looks. I think that the deaths are brutal in their, like... Again, it's like nothing... There's no, like, crazy, like, Rube Goldberg contraptions to kill people. There's no ridiculous like feats of strength or anything it's just a person that's adept at like stalking and killing taking people by surprise and killing them and i don't know it's just it's really effective to me and i i love the way the prowler villain looks like it's one of my favorite 
looks to like a you know an antagonist in in a, maybe like in the entire 1980s because it's so unique i can't think of anything else that like even comes close in terms of just like being such a simple premise but being so effectively done like when he's like strapping up like lacing his boots and putting the bayonet in his you know what i mean it's like mm-hmm. the equipment montage thing like i really like that i think it's really effective that it's just like this ultra prepared dude that's got one purpose in mind that nobody knows about and that's why he can do it yeah i i have a number of things to say about this movie and i didn't dislike this movie but and this seems i'll start with the nitpicky first this is a really bad title for a movie i don't like this i granted i was 1 year old when this movie came out okay but the Prowler feels like it sh- would fit in the nineteen. 19- if it, it was if it was set in the nineteen forties, where it begins, it feels like a better title than the nineteen eighties. Unless I'm misremembering that word Prowler having as much prominence in the nineteen eighties. So I'll, I'll give you some context. Okay. Um, in the early eighties, you had things like the Green River Killer and um, the Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. Like, people were really afraid of somebody surreptitiously getting entrance to their house and murdering. Understood. So, the term Prowler, I, I think, had a lot more weight yeah. to it then. Just Even then? Of, yeah, because of that idea. Mm. I mean, I have this weird, like, memory of hearing about one of those things as, like, mm. a little kid and being, like, really afraid of somebody, like, creeping around the outside of the house, like, yeah. trying to get in. Um, and when you read, like... I still have that fear in 2019. So, yeah, I get it. I just didn't know if that word was still as prevalent. No, look, I have no idea. In the 1980s. That's just my guess. Yeah. Because that's why. I understand the concept was scary, but it's just that specific word. I just thought. And and Prowler is such a, like, a very neutral word. Like, it's, there's no connotation of fear to me to Prowler. It's just a very generic description of what that person is that it doesn't really say fear. I just think it was like it could have been had a better title to Maybe. it. And it's a very nitpicky thing. But. I mean, I think it's I, I think it's pulling from like like ripped from the headlines type yeah. thing. Okay. I might so, be wrong with the timing, yeah. but I'm almost positive Green River Killers like it's, early eighties. There 80s. was tons of serial killers between the late seventies and early eighties. I, mean, I just mean this idea, like especially like the Night Stalker. Yeah, that's that's around that time. It period. was about like the entering the house and like murdering the person in their own bed. You mean the, the original Night Stalker? Um, what's the, his name? The Ramirez. Ramirez. Richard Ramirez. Right. right. So yeah, there's original Night Stalker and then there's Ramirez, and Ramirez was like right around this time period. He was operating, and I mean that was a fear that people had, and yeah. that was like especially sure. like that's his mo. So I right, mean, yeah. And that's just whatever, like, armchair psychology for me, but I would think maybe that's why. Here's my thing, is I wish this would have stayed in the 1940s. It probably would have been more interesting. I think, I I thought that the newsreel opening was a really interesting opening, because I've never seen this before. This is, I think, the only one that I've never seen before. And it was the only one I hadn't seen before. And I was, like, actually kind of interested with the news were opening. And then it's, like, looks like it's set in the 1940s. And I was like, oh, this is a nice little twist in the whole thing. That it's going to be set in a different time period. with, And then it jumps. Right. And it's like, uh, okay. Like, so now it's more typical. To the ugliest leading man 
I think, in any horror movie ever. Like the Neanderthal that is Poor Deputy Galman, yeah. Deputy Sheriff Mark. Yeah, it's uh, he's unfortunate, like for a male lead, but she's not even attractive. Like they really kind of go together. Like I can see the attraction sort of. And I even then, early on, I was still kind of interested in the movie. Like when she comes in to change her clothes and her friend's been killed, like I thought that that was still like pretty good because it was tense. It was filmed well. And then it just slowly kind of devolves into this. We're going to talk more about this later. You you said that there's something about people getting killed for no reason that you think it works in some way for you that's effective. And I think uh, that stands out to me because I think it's a conversation we're going to have in a couple of movies mm. that I think is maybe the key difference between the right. two of us. And but it kind of turns into that. It's just like okay, this person's getting killed, and this person's getting killed. Now the special effects that Savini does. Fantas- absolutely like He's, i think th- this year because he also did the burning which yeah. very was very close to making the list in this place because i love that movie right He's like on top of his game yeah at this point yeah no like it's practical uh, effects it's he's he's amazing i would say it's either tied with or the best special effects that is on this list probably yeah and that's a bold claim We'll get there. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I think that um, the special effects are really good. In the end, I just thought it was a Scooby-Doo episode. Sure. With really good special effects and more violence. So I don't want to, I don't want to shoot my load on a dry run, uh-huh. so to speak. Uh-huh. But, and we'll, we'll we'll talk about this in two movies. <laughs> like the. The build-up to the most contentious movie on this list. Um, I love Urban Legends. Like, growing up from a really early age, like, I was always fascinated by, like, modern folklore. You know, and I I would check out the Urban Legends books from the library when I was, you know, middle school, early high school. So, to me, I, I, I just, I like movies that kind of remind you of that whole like the guy with the hook outside the car or you know the calls coming from inside the house you know what i mean like the simple premise that really is about nothing more than the fear that someone might want to do you harm and you have no idea why like i think that's a really effective thing and i think it's kind of gotten watered down and certainly done to death over like the past 30 odd years since this movie's been released but I don't think it makes it any less effective and I really think it's a beautifully shot movie I love the soft focus in it like I love the way that they shoot like light and the scenes like in the ball and stuff like I I like all this stuff a lot and I it's really you know there's a lot of care taken in the filming of this movie and I I I like that like I appreciate when it's more than just schlock i guess another thing was the setting which is why i noted that that it doesn't matter whatsoever is because it seems at the beginning to almost feel like they want it to matter it's obviously a seaside area right that you get established in the beginning of the 1940 stuff and that killing and then when it moves to the present it's like it could be anywhere and it doesn't matter and it's like it was, i thought it was going to create this little and you're right it has this kind of 1950s carryover quality to yeah. the town but a lot of that has to do with, like, the Sadie Hawkins-esque dance that's going on, like, at the college. And I just don't think the setting is utilized extremely at all. 
when they sure. insta- when a ba- you know, it's the checkoff principle like it's like it's almost like they set up the setting to be to matter and then none of it matters and it's just like these very small claustrophobic areas inside different buildings so another movie that could have made this list that takes more advantage of the setting is my bloody valentine right and i you you, you said you said off air that you were surprised that, that didn't make it in place of this right and honestly like that and the burning because i knew i wanted to do like a traditional slasher movie that's not like a part of a series of slasher movies as one of the movies on here. I don't know. There's just, to, I guess it's just the look yeah. of the murderer and like Savini's yeah. special effects. And like, I just, I, I love, the I way think the this movie looks. is better directed than my bloody Valentine, but I thought my bloody Valentine was a much more interesting setting story. Sure. And, ending. and killer and, right. and, and ending. Yeah. It's got a good twist. Yeah. I mean, my, it, I love My Bloody Valentine. And, yeah. like, 81 could have been probably, like, 10 movies long, and I still would have been fine with it. But, I don't know. Again, like, it's just something about this movie. I think it's because this is not a movie that I saw when I was young. Mm. Like, I didn't see this movie until I was maybe in, like, my mid-20s. Um, and just, like, random happenstance that I saw it. And then it came out, like, there was released kino or scream factory or something like did a dvd re-release in the mid-2000s that was like beautiful like a beautiful cut of it which is what you would have seen like that cut right um that just like i don't know like i i love the way that like zito films like the light in the movie and just the way that everything looks and i don't know i didn't did he do anything else i don't know yeah (laughs) i just know that you directed it but i have no idea Okay, you have any other thoughts on this? I think I incorporated the one piece of criticism kind of into my own to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, Plus the guy that I took from pissed you off last week, so I don't want to like cause that to happen again right. or the other week. Look, you like horror movies or you don't. You like slasher movies or you don't like slasher movies, I guess. And I think that if you enjoy slasher movies that you'll find a lot to like. Are you trying to preempt things here? Like, <clears throat> Go ahead. Look, I'm building my case. Yeah, I buddy. know. Um... I don't know. I, I think it's an enjoyable movie. I don't think that it's... I mean, it's got a ridiculous ending, but you could say that about maybe like probably like 50% of every horror movie ever. That the ending is like out of nowhere and ridiculous. Um, but I, it's enjoyable and I really like it. Joseph Zito also directed Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Hmm. And uh, the Missing in Action. The Oh, uh, I love Missing in Action. Yeah. yeah, good job. Is he the father of Chuck Zito? I don't believe so. No. no. Or Frank Zito. Isn't that his name? Who's Frank Zito? Isn't, what's the guy from uh, Oz? You're right, Chuck Zito. Oh, Chuck Zito. Yeah, Chuck Frank Zito. Zito is somebody. I don't think so. We're, we're going to check that. Okay. All right. All right. We'll go ahead and move on. Um, another maybe contentious movie here to some degree. But uh, the number four on the list is uh, famous Italian director Lucio Fulci. Uh, in 1981, he released The Beyond. It stars Catrino, uh, uh, McCall, David Warbeck, and Cynthia Monreal. Uh, 63% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 76 from audiences. Frank, did you want to explain a little bit about maybe the history of this and context of Fulci's movies and the premise and all that? Because this is part of a trilogy, correct? some degree yeah it's um shit i gotta think of what the proper titles gates of hell gates the of beyond hell. and then um house by the cemetery i guess yes, is the third one it is yeah um 
Fulci basically builds this almost like Lovecraftian mythology that there are certain places of the earth that are like doors to hell and that there's things that can happen that can cause the dead to rise. And you're basically like, I mean, he was inspired by the Dunwich Horror, like, you know, and that's what Gates of Hell is basically is, is like a ultra violent, re- like, um, homage to the Dunwich Horror. Um, so this movie takes place in Louisiana. Uh, there's a guy that's murdered by a group of townspeople um, by being crucified and then doused in lye um, to the point where his body dissolves. Or quicklime, I guess, is what they douse him with um, yeah. to the point where his body dissolves. Um, flash forward to years later where this young blonde woman has bought the hotel and wants to open it and like renovate it and all these things start happening. Um a lot of nonsensical stuff happens that leads to the point where maybe she's seeing things from the past or maybe she's being influenced by like dark forces. She has um this guy, John, that's possibly the worst hero in any movie ever. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute because I, there's a lot of stuff about John that just drives me nuts. Lots of stuff. Um, but in essence, it, there's this book, the Eberon or whatever I think it's called, um, that talks about how to open the doors of hell and through circumstance, they open a door of hell. Um, the dead rise. There's a lot of zombies walking around. There's a lot of people getting like eyes gouged out and flesh ripped and in the end they both end up like going through a door of hell and into the beyond, which is, you know, where the film gets its title. Um, Fulci, it's always difficult for me to judge the plot of a Fulci movie because I don't know how much is lost in the terrible translation from whatever was originally done in Italian to when they dubbed it in English. And then like, the disconnect there, like maybe the What's fact. What's weird that, though is all these Ameri- all these actors spoke English when they filmed it and they well, still dubbed it. But I mean, that's true for a lot of Italian yeah. and Spanish like movies from that time. Mm-hmm. Like you look at stuff like even like Sergio Leone's movies and stuff. A lot of those are ones that are English speaking actors speaking English that is then dubbed over in English again yeah. to match like their performance, which right. is always really weird yeah. and like kind of off putting. Yeah. In my opinion, like, having seen probably, Jesus, like, several hundred movies of this ilk, like, mm-hmm. I just kind of accept it and, like, yeah, sure, it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I love the mythology that Fulci tries to build, and he does so, like, pretty effectively over these three movies, even though I know that you are not a fan of, of, of any of them, I don't think. I don't know if we've ever talked about House by the Cemetery. Yeah. Um, I, I think the Fulci is, like, next to Argento, maybe one of the most artistically gifted horror directors in terms of how he can frame a shot, how he uses color Mm -hmm. to sort of like change your mood or your perception of a scene or like evoke like visceral reactions in you. Um, I love Fulci's vision of what a zombie looks like. Like I like the, I mean, it's obvious that they're just like caking like makeup over people to make them look like rotted or whatever but i i really like the like the recessed eyes and the like the flesh kind of falling off and um there's a lot of scenes in this movie that i think are like incredibly effective um i really like the the 
glazed eye contact thing with people that have come in contact yeah. with the beyond. Yes, I do like that. As like a sign that like they've been turned like to the to darkness and now they're like blind or whatever, but they can mm-hmm. see like even more than that. Um again, you can't go into a Fulci movie expecting it to make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. What are, what other sequences do you like though beyond that like what things stand out to you? I like a lot of stuff in the hotel itself. Like, I like a lot of times where they're moving through the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, when she's talking to Liza or whatever the woman's name is that, like, may or may not exist. Um, I love the sequence where Liza's, like, being attacked by the zombies and has, like, her German shepherds keeping him at bay because she's got mm-hmm. the seeing eye dog as the mm-hmm. pretense as to why she's blind. And then the German Shepherd, like, rips her neck out. Like, I think that's, like, it, it, it. the first time I saw that, I was like, well, shit. Like, I did not expect her to, like, get killed in that. Um, I love the corpse rising out of the quicklime. I think that's really mm-hmm. effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like, even though it's, like, a ridiculous scene, I like how different every zombie is in the end sequence in the hospital when they're being, like, kind of, like, pursued by this, like, slow-moving like army of the dead like i i really like that everything looks different um I, I there's no horror sequence that i think is bad i don't think and i just watched this movie and I, I can't think of anything that strikes me as being like dumb there's definitely stuff in like gates of hell where i just kind of roll my eyes at it mm-hmm. Um, but in this movie, like, I think it's, I think it's pretty tight. This is actually a little bit more subdued than I remember Gates of Hell being in terms of some of the excess of it. It, this is him, I think, really trying to, like, build that mythology in the same way that, um, you know, Inferno as a follow-up to Suspiria is more about building the mythos of the three mothers and, like, actually telling you about it. This is about the book of Eberron and, like building this mythos through like you know you've seen this movie now this is the explanation as to why all these things happen um however i think maybe my favorite part of this movie and maybe not for the right reasons is the character of john um I don't even know, like, what, what is he? Like a private investigator or just like a friend or something? Yeah. Just some guy that's there that like is really, like, skeptical of things, but is also willing to, like, investigate him and wants to find the truth of it. So, there's some really funny scenes with John that, like... And again, like, I don't think it's intended, but it makes me, like, love this movie. Um, Here's this guy that's supposed to be, like, this calm, collected, like, debonair badass, kind of. And there's a scene where they're in the basement. There's this flooded basement underneath the hotel... That apparently is, like, where the door of, of hell, the gate of hell is. And, like, it connects to all these, like, spots in the world where, like, you'll be somewhere. Then all of a sudden you're in the basement. Um, which actually is a really cool concept sure. that they don't really explain very they well. But, yeah. like, it's it, it when you think about it, when you use your imagination to, like, make, like, connections between things, like, it's actually pretty cool, the idea. So there's one scene where, like, the wind blows. And he screams like a girl and wraps his arms around her. Like, he wants her to protect him. And he's just like, "Ah." And, like, the wind's blowing. And it's like, this guy was, like, threatening her, like, two seconds before. And all of a sudden, he's afraid. But the funniest thing with John is that... So, at the end of the movie, they go into the hospital because they're like... We got to figure out where, like, where all this stuff's coming from. Maybe we can get some answers at the research clinic or whatever. So, they go back to the research clinic. And the zombies come to life and are attacking them. And he starts shooting them. 
And even though every time they show him mm-hmm. shooting the gun, he's like three feet away from a zombie. He continuously hits them in like the guts and the arms. But every time he hits them in the head and blows their head off, they die. And he doesn't realize. And he never, gra- except, so this happens. And I don't, like, he gets like all these bullets. Like he reloads his gun like yeah. at least like four times, I guess. Yeah. So the main zombie, like the, the basic premise is there was this artist who lived in this hotel. That's where the gate of hell is. And he was killed because he was trying to open the gate of hell. So they killed him to stop it from happening. And the woman renovating the hotel is like reawakened his spirit. And this is what's causing the gate to open again. Um, which is a really, it's, it's a good premise. Like for, it's yeah. very, again, very Lovecraftian. Right. Um, so the corpse of this painter is coming at them at the end. And like, this is like their chance to like kill it and end it. And he shoots the corpse five times and never hits it in the head, even though he's three feet away from it. But then this little girl who's been turned to the darkness goes to attack the main character and he whirls and in one motion blows her head apart. And it's like, buddy, like you haven't been able to hit these slow moving zombies ever. Right. Even though like, and it's weird because like sometimes he's a marksman because there's the one part where they break through the window and they grab her and he's just like shooting. Yeah. And he's like hitting their hand like right next to her head. Then he hits their head like right above her head. And it's like these pinpoint shots. And then when the main guys come in, he like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. He's, he's one of the funniest leading man characters, maybe next to the main character of Inferno, who I also think is an idiot. But, like, for somebody, like, he figures out everything that's happening in this movie. Like, he's the one that, like, finds the book, and he's the one that figures out about the gates of hell, and he's the one that's like, you gotta stop doing what you're doing, and then just falls apart completely, like, when it matters. And, I mean, I don't know if that's on purpose, but it's really funny. Yeah, uh, my note on everything you just described is, why the fuck is he not shooting them in the head? Right, because he, they... (sighs) That's Every time he shoots them in the head, they fall over and they yes. stop moving. Right. And he's continuously shooting them in the yeah. stomach. Especially, yeah, especially that one in the morgue where he just keeps shooting in the stomach. Then turns around, shoots her in the head, and then can, goes back and shoots him in the stomach. Right. Like, it, it, it seriously is like a John Woo shot. Yeah. Like, it's so yeah. quick and, like, he's pointing and then her head explodes. It makes no sense. Right. It's, it's, it's... <laughs> and then he just throws the gun. Yeah. Like, we gotta get out of here. Right. Um... Yeah. Do you have any criticism you want to talk about? Or... Uh, there's... The... I mean, you, you've already kind of talked about, like, Ed Gonzalez of Slate talks about how Fulci owes a lot, of, he thinks, to Argento mm-hmm. and Suspiria specifically. Uh, and, but he says where, let me find it here. So he says, Argento's blind man stands before a vast and empty cityscape killed by a seeing eye dog when the animal is commanded by a mysterious spirit. The blind girl that lives in the old house by the crossroads meets a similar demise when otherworldly forces takes a hold of her pet doggy. Even by Argento standards, Fulci's film is nonsensical to the point of distraction. Liza has just inherited her uncle's rundown New Orleans hotel, which just happens to lie atop one of the seven doors of hell. A door has opened before and will open again from this opening will emerge slow-moving zombies. It's never clear what's happening, where the characters are running to, why corpses are hooked up to EKG machines, that is true, and why imaginary characters are prone to the sufferings of the flesh. Uh, So you've already kind of like in some ways addressed this, that it is not like agreeing that it is at times nonsensical to plot. Um, I think my bigger 
I did a lot of reading on this movie. And I think that... I think what I have more of a problem with is the defenders of this movie and the veracity in which they defend it. So... And, and plenty of, like, actual, like, academics, like, def- like have written on this movie and defend it by saying, uh, especially one saying it's, uh, the whole thing you're just supposed to view it as a fever dream. And you, and you shouldn't try to make any sense of it. It's like, and it has the logic of, of a dream a lot of times. And he's riffing off this idea. Fulci said that what how he wanted this movie to be viewed as is as a series of images, which I can't think of anything more artsy in my life is, right. you know, it's like, no, it's a movie. It should probably have somewhat of a look coherency to it. Lucio Fulci thought of himself as an artist. And he was probably, but it's a... You're still making a movie that should have some semblance of plot and reason behind it. I will I, I will defend The Beyond as a movie that I enjoy very much and I think has a lot of merit. But let me say that like anybody that tries to defend a movie by saying things like that knows that there's parts of the movie that are kind of indefensible and just doesn't want to defend them. Sure. And, th- and then you have people, um, Pop Matters writer Bill Gibran... Um, Goes ahead and tries to describe that he thinks that the main subtext of this movie centers on slavery, witchcraft, mob justice, uh, and perhaps the key to almost all Fulci narratives, revenge. Give you the revenge. But to take the first four or five minutes of this movie and try to somehow make that a main subtext of this which involves witchcraft and slavery as being these that is not developed at all throughout no. any of I don't this. even know where you get that from honestly so so he um so, so he goes on and I, and look he actually is a very bright guy like I read his article and like he it's a very in-depth article on Fulci that he writes and I agree with a lot of things that he says but he he's definitely a Fulci fan who feels he needs to defend Fulci in a lot of ways and I just think like and there's a lot of people that are like that specifically about Fulci even more so than I found about Argento where people feel the need to defend him a lot of times and but do you know why that is honestly and I'm a very big fan of Lucio Fulci like I I don't know if there's many movies of his that I don't like at least like like and I really love like a lot of his stuff but I love it knowing that it's not going to make much sense. Like, and knowing that he's very flawed. I always get the impression that Lucio Fulci had a five-hour movie in his head that he had condensed to 90 minutes. And he just tried to pick, like, the broadest strokes out of that five hours just to make the movie that he wanted to make. This is a guy, he loves cosmic horror he loves the idea of like the apocalypse and like the end end times. He's very like biblical and he's very otherworldly in like his filmmaking. And all those things are fantastic if you just take them in the context that he's not a very good narrative storyteller. Yeah. Gibran's main thesis was the idea that all of his films have this idea, this theme of man versus God and of man overstepping his bounds and all those kind of things, which I, from everything I've seen, Fulci's exactly right. He's exactly right. Right. So no, I think there, I think if you look at Fulci's body of work, whatever you think of about the movies, I think he's a very interesting guy, a very interesting filmmaker. I think people are defending the actual 
films themselves too much because there is this deeper thread that runs among his films and they like that aspect of them sometimes and but here's the thing is like you said that like you'd like to think that he has like a five-hour movie and here's the thing is he doesn't like right. I, he has a th- he had a three-page treatment for this movie because he doesn't care about the actual movie itself he cares about the images and he's very good at that and this is the most frustrating thing to me about Fulci is you're exactly right in everything you said about Fulci like I think Fulci is a fantastic director I think his framing is on point I think that he does have really good use of color I think he knows how to um positioning is very good I think he has interesting camera angles the things you said about the guy rising up like out of like the tub like all those things like he has very good imagery like you know and he knows how to make films I, and this has a killer soundtrack by the way yeah it's really good like this the soundtrack this is incredible yeah. um, again another thing that I think he apes from Margento a little yeah, bit no absolutely absolutely yeah and he's such a talented guy and I think that plot-wise, that there's great ideas there that could be mined for more in the hands of better writers. Sure. And I think that it ultimately brings the movie down because it ends up just being, to some degree, nonsense. Bad dialogue, kind of uninteresting subtext and exposition to get to the next special effects scene that he wants to do. Right. And I don't. And when I said this, I think Savini's like either one or tied for one on this list. I don't. This is not the movie that I'm talking about. I don't think the special effects are great in this. I like the eyes, the little things you said. I really liked the big things. I don't. I like, I like the, it when the guys, the plumber's head gets crushed and his eye pops out. Yeah, it's okay. Like that's really one of the that. better ones. But like the tarantula eating, <laughs> no, that got so eat, funny. Eating rubber. I mean, like that's all that's happening. Yeah, that's like, just hilarious. You know, um, there there are so many things. Like even the the girl getting bitten by the dog, a great scene. I yeah. think. I, I love how he shifts focus, like you know, away from the dog attacking the zombie, you know, right. reanimated corpse, and shifts to her and has that silence and a brilliantly filmed scene. And then it goes to the dog, which is obviously some sort of like, like puppet, puppet mm-hmm. like biting into her and ripping her throat out so water, red water can pour out right. of it. And I just think it looks like shit. And it takes me out of the movie at that point, out of a movie that I don't even, I'm not even invested in that much because it has a bad plot. And it's so frustrating to sit there and watch a guy who's so talented make a movie that just doesn't have a lot of substance to it. So here's my here's my faulty defense. Yeah. You're not wrong in anything you said. It's just like I think you like it or you don't. I don't know. Like I think that I think there's certain directors. And I'm fine with that. And like I'll I'll, I'll point to somebody else that I don't think in your films you've seen I don't know that you like very much, which is like Alejandro Jodorowsky, right? Mm-hmm. And it's something where I think that you're either able to forgive a bad narrative and some logical leaps for the sake of the image or you're not. And if you can, then I think that Fulci is an amazing director. And I think that every one of his movies has at least like five or six images that will stay with you for a long time. And if you can't get past that, then it's just not for you. you know? Sure. And, and here's the thing is I do have images like rewatching this, that 
I have images from different movies like Gates of Hell and Zombie and stuff like right. that that I'll still still carry with me to this day from seeing them the first time. But I don't know. I just don't know. Even if it's ninety or ninety two minutes or whatever, I just personally I just don't know if it's worth it to for a couple good images. Like I mean, uh, when you have to sit through the kind of nonsense of um, you know, it's oh my god, what is the line? It was like something like you got. I'm giving you carte blanche, but you don't have a blank check. Right, that's a great line. It's oh my like, god, it's so funny. I'm I and look, sure, it is. Like it's it's a great line in the sense that it's so bad, it's right. good and poorly delivered. But I, I'm, I'm going to be honest anymore. It's like I don't have a lot of that in me, like to watch something that's so bad it's good. So let me say this to you, right? And maybe this is maybe this is the flaw in this exercise is that when we talk about like lists of movies, traditionally we're talking about my favorite five movies in a genre, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm actually thinking about which movies mean the most or have the most impact or are, like, truly the best movies. Mm -hmm. The focus of this, like, quote, like, series or whatever is B-movies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, these are not great seminal films that are meant to be, in in my opinion, meant Mm -hmm. to be, like, discussed at an intellectual, like, literary level. We're just doing that. With stuff that was made to turn a profit really fast. Mm. And I love the fact that Fulci... Fulci has, like, a huge output of film. Sure. Between the 70s and the 80s. Beyond horror, too. Right. I mean, mean, he made a lot of movies. Yeah. And influenced a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea that this man, who knew that he was doing nothing more than making something that could be shown in a grindhouse to turn, like, a small profit, invests so much, like, artistry in what he does. Mm -hmm. And, like, really creates some amazing like visual tableaus like that just i mean again like that you you always talk about the shark fighting the zombie underwater mm-hmm. i mean that's fantastic like there's so many scenes in his movies that when you think about horror like there would come to mind and i don't know i just i, I like that but let me quick because you, i don't think you really talked about it what do you think about the ending of this like i thought it was pretty effective actually yeah i like it a lot yeah. i think it's probably i think it's probably one i think of it was his, one of the true moments of kind of something real close to dread or horror that I felt in watching it. The right. only only time. I mean it's it's so like full disclosure, you know, they're they escape the research center and find themselves back in the submerged basement. Yeah. Um and end up going into the gate of hell and are in this like blasted gray and black landscape with these like still forms all around and they may or may not be corpses or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the camera turns, like, you see them moving away from the camera, and then the camera turns to face them, and both of their eyes have become fully white to and show you that... See, and you see the fa- their faces with the recognition of what's happened to them. Right. Like, that they're now... And then it, it pulls yeah. back from them and out of frame into a fresco, showing this, like, Hieronymus Bosch-esque, like, hellscape that they've been sucked into... And it basically is like the futility of yeah. man, basically. It's, sure. it's, it's, it's a good ending. Yeah. I, it's definitely... Fulci's not very good at ending movies, in my yeah. opinion. Um, but it's it's a pretty effective ending. Yeah, Gates of Hell ending is awful. But yeah. Oh, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I thought, the, I thought this was actually like for all my complaints about things in the movie, I thought it was a really effective ending. Yeah. And even though he's an idiot, like in that, I thought the last 20 minutes of this is actually really good besides the fact that he's an idiot and can't remember to shoot him in the head and make that connection that if you shoot him in the head, they fall down right. and he just continually shoots people in the chest. 
I mean, only because you got to get him back down into the basement. Sure. If he's sure. if he learns that, then there's no movie. Right. Or no ending because he ends it. Whatever. Right. Sure. So okay. Uh, let's move on to the third movie on the list and get this over with, Frank. Yeah. <clears throat> so number three on the list is Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, directed by Stephen Miner, starring Amy Steele, John Fury, Warrington Gillette. It has a 34% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics mm. and a 48% from audiences. Uh, did you want to go ahead and describe the amazing plot of this movie and why you like it so much? So some troubled teens who are learning to be camp counselors go to Camp Crystal Lake um, are summarily murdered by Jason Voorhees until only one remains who beats the shit out of Voorhees and may or may not, I don't know. She survives in the end in the hospital or going into an ambulance. It's the plot. Yeah. Teenagers in peril in the woods getting killed. So go ahead. Tell me, seriously, what do you like about this? All right. So, and I kind of alluded to this in when we talk about The Prowler. Mm-hmm. Number one, the Friday the 13th series was omnipresent when I was a kid. And it was one of those things where, you know, when you were at recess, you were talking about, and not even recess, like even like later in life, what NES game you rented that weekend. And if you saw the new Friday, the 13th movie, because this is every year series for a while, I think like throughout maybe until like 87 or 88, I think mm-hmm. maybe one a year. Um, I am a, again, I'm a huge fan of urban legend. Like I love, I really like the idea of taking this minor bit from Friday the 13th part one, which is the deformed kid like leaping out of the water to drag her back in. Mm -hmm. And then now you make that deformed kid the main character. Like he's the killer that's avenging his mother's death. Is there a whole lot of plot to it? Nah. You know? And does there need to be? Like, I don't think so. Is there a lot of characterization? Not really, you know, but do you need it to be? Because that's not what it's about. Like, I... What is it? It's just, what is it about then? It's just about the idea of, like, like, it's about what any urban legend is about. It's like a modern morality tale set in, like, this setting that's sort of familiar to most people from this time. Because, like, when you were a kid, like, a lot of people went to summer camp. Mm-hmm. Or at least, like, lived in an area where they knew about it or heard, like, you know, like, we had urban legends around here. You know, we had Pig Woman. We had yeah, other yeah. things that everybody knew about. So, it's just one of those things where it's, like, a friend of a friend knew somebody that was murdered at this camp. Or a friend of a friend knew somebody that was there the night that, like, this little boy drowned and then his mother came. You know, it's, like, that's what it is. It's the telling of this urban legend. And I think it does it in a really, a very succinct way where you get you know your gratuitous violence of these people getting murdered it's a lot more gratuitous than friday the 13th part one in terms of like how it shows the murders um i like this movie a lot in terms of like the entire series because it's the only time where jason Voorhees is sort of a beatable opponent where he's not a superhuman unkillable monster um I like the fact that they only show you the one eye 
And there's actually, like, emotion that's shown through that eye, like, confusion and anger and sadness and, like, lust a little bit towards his mother, which is also kind of weird. Um, I think the scene with, um, uh, shit, Ginny or whatever, Ginny. I think, in um, Voorhees' like, ramshackle cabin, um, putting on the sweater and pretending to be Pamela Voorhees is... I mean, for me, it's, like, one of the more memorable scenes from, like, the 1980s in terms of horror. Um, because the first time I saw it, like, completely caught me by surprise. Even though I had seen Friday the 13th, like, you're like, oh, man, like, that's really cool. That that's exactly, you know, it's her sweater and it's her head and she's pretending to be Jason or Jason's mother. And it almost, like, wins, you know? It's, like, psychology beating this monster as opposed mm-hmm. to just brute force, which is a really interesting idea. Sure. Um, I'll go. I'll go that far, yeah. And I, like, I think that the camp counselors, while they lack a lot of development, like, there's really not much. It's like, these ones are potheads, this guy's handicapped, this girl's got a soft heart, this guy's the jokester. Mm. I think they're likable characters. I don't think they do anything, whereas in later Friday the 13th, there's a very concerted effort made to make you hate the counselors so that you're rooting for Jason to kill him. I think in this one, it's softer where you're supposed to kind of like these people. So you, you're you supposed to feel bad when they die. Now, whether or not you have any kind of attachment to them, okay. But that's the intent behind mm-hmm. it. And ultimately, you know, they, they think they win. You get like the false ending with the dog, which is kind of funny, which is like, oh, haha, it's just, uh, I guess Muffin was still alive the whole time. And then he crashes through the window and he drags her out and, and then look. It's completely formulaic to the first movie. Like, it's taking basically beat for beat what happens in the first movie, expanding upon it a little bit by really, like, showing you the killer the whole time, like, letting you see Jason. And then, you know, like, having, like, the false ending and then, like, the other false ending and then maybe it was all a dream ending. Um, But it, you know, you, you look at horror series from the 1980s and... Jason Voorhees is, in my opinion, like the most iconic horror villain ever. And maybe not like the most interesting, definitely not the most interesting. But there's something about this silent murderer who has no, again, like no other motive than just to kill people. And to do so in like the most gruesome ways possible. And I think in this movie... It's more about, like, getting to the point where you realize that he still has his mother's head in the cabin. And he's still just this little boy that's, like, trying to, like, avenge his mother's death. Than it is in later movies where it's just, like, let's get from set piece to set piece to set piece of how we can murder someone in the most gruesome way possible and show as many boobs as we can, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in the process. I don't know. I mean, like, even if you hate the movies, you can't deny the importance of the Friday the 13th series to the horror genre in general. Like, I mean, Friday the 13th is the reason why there are like actual, like studio backed big budget horror movies in the world because they made so much money Mm -hmm. and they did so with such sparse narrative and no, real continuity like there's slight continuity between them and definitely between one and two um i don't know i just i I think it's a really i think it's really well done i really enjoy it i watched this today 
I made sure this was the last movie I watched, and I watched it before we did the podcast, so it would be completely fresh in my head. Mm-hmm. And also, because I was a little afraid that I might not like it as much as I remembered. Uh-huh. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Like, I thought it was really good. Yeah. So, and I think I agree with this, is Jeffrey Anderson of the website Combustible Celluloid says that this is perhaps the least interesting, well, I don't know if I agree with this, but perhaps the least interesting of all the Friday 13th films since it tries to be a sequel to the first film, referencing themes and storylines. Things that would get more interesting is the films become more stripped down, more self-contained, and more primal, uh, essentially hideous clones of one another. Fans know that this is Jason's first adding to the killer, though the film once again plays it as a murder mystery with his identity a secret until the climax. Um, so I think that idea about it when they, once they get more primal, I think that's, to me, that's when they become a little bit more interesting. When that supernatural element comes into that character, then I can feel a little bit more that he is unstoppable. I think it becomes a little bit more horrifying to me where this, and not to get me, don't get me wrong. I don't know if I'm going to like, if I have to watch any of them again, I don't know if I'm going to like any of them. Right. Because I think they're going to be the same formulaic thing that happens over and over. But I do think I like that version of Jason more of when he's this just unstoppable monster, almost like this wrath that comes upon these teenagers that they, you know, that they it's futile to try to really fight, but they try to anyway. So maybe... <clears throat> I, I've seen every one of these movies yeah. up through maybe 10, mm-hmm. at least like five or six times. Okay. And probably more than that, yeah. honestly. I mean... Because my memories as a kid is I remember liking, and I keep telling you this, I think it's four and five, or is around the time that I actually... There's a couple of them that I actually liked, I remember, as a kid. You like the Corey Feldman one? I, I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, That one's good. I think that's five. Yeah. Um, But there's kind of a plot to it. There is. And I, and I think that's why, like... Because you know, it harkens back to 2. Right. Is why. Right. Because it it's the most sequel-ish Friday the 13th to mm-hmm. the first two movies, which is what makes it interesting. It's yeah. continuing that mythology of, like... I don't know. I mean, I... I, I okay, so, so, so there's that. So, like, you know, that it becomes more primal. And it's like, you know, maybe that's more interesting. Um, another critic, Eric, Eric Snyder writes that Friday the 13th part two is actually a little better than its predecessor. Of course, that's like saying that vandals didn't rape quite as many Romans the second time they invaded the city. Still, uh, for one thing, as primitive as they may be, there are glimpses of character arcs in the second movie. The blonde mannish hero, Ginny, says early on that she knows something about child psychology. This is to your point. They call her mannish? Yeah. Um. M-A-N-N-I-S-H? Yeah. Um, later, she uses this knowledge to save herself from the killer. It's not Eugene O'Neill, but at least someone was trying. The first film is just a smorgasbord of characters who deserve to die. So, let I, me ask you this question before uh-huh. you ask me your question. Uh huh. Did you include this review because you were trying to piss me off? I like I, you, I, you, would, you. I would never do that. You read this language. You're like, yeah, that's gonna get him pissed. No, fuck no. this guy. Like. <laughs> First of all, like, she's not mannish. Like, what, what? what's that fucking insult? Like, what does that even matter? What does her appearance matter in that respect? I, because she's a psychology fucking misogynist? Like, get <laughs> out of here. And then... God, I don't even know how to respond to that. Like, 
the vandals thing is unnecessary. It's terrible criticism. But ah, oh, you motherfuckers. So <laughs> listen. Well, hold on. He's actually making points that you kind of already have stated, though, in some ways. Like, not the whole sentiment of it, but, like, some of the things. Like, he's he's acknowledging that it's, like, they actually do have some character development in this that you pointed out. Like, that she talks about child psychology right, earlier on. She like, utilizes that later on. Like, you know, I mean, which I agree. I that's, think that's... that's it, it, it's damning with faint praise, though, the way that this man is saying it. Like, sure. That is. Sure. Well, let's be honest. Very few things are Eugene O'Neill. Um, All right. Keep, keep, keep going with your shit. So, so I mean, you agree with that um, to some degree. Like you, it's a it's a point that you made. Um, like, and and he says, and he mentions about how the first one was characters that deserve to die, and we've talked about that. This the idea that you think these characters are a little bit more likable than the first. Movie. I honestly don't think the characters in the first movie deserve to die, unless you think that people having sex and oh, I don't think they deserve to die. That's his language, but it's like, um, yeah, but but I mean. They're, he's he's trying to acknowledge. I think that they're more likable in this movie. They seem more they're they're more believable, mm-hmm. like people. I think in this yeah. movie. Here's my problem: is I think I feel bad that I didn't shit all over the first one <laughs> last week well, when sh- I should have shit away. I guess. No, uh, that's fine. It, it, it doesn't matter now. But I think the first one is just not a very good movie. Um, overall. And I think that this one is slightly better. And I don't think that's saying much about these movies. That's I just, it. I just don't think, I mean, I don't think they're for you. I don't, yeah, know, that's what, fine. I don't know what to say. And like, I, I acknowledged that earlier. It's like, that's fine. Like, it, it, it's, it, we don't have to agree on them. It's just like, I just don't see where it's just getting from one place to another for the next kill and it's like right which I, is the fucking point of the slasher genre we are not watching this isn't scream you know what i mean like this isn't meant to be some kind of like meta commentary on anything it's a fucking slasher movie like it's meant to be getting from one kill to the next sure and the fact that they invest anything in the idea of like mythology and psychology mm-hmm. and motive yeah, and like trying to bridge between there aren't like what what is this eighty one so I don't think Halloween two hasn't been made yet or maybe Halloween two is this oh, year I think that's eighty two maybe right so that hasn't been made yet yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street hasn't been made yet like this is the first real like horror sequel that turns mm-hmm. into a franchise and now they make them every year after this sure, for like for, seven years yeah a long time but. That's pretty bold to, mm-hmm. like, try and make a legitimate sequel to a one-off horror movie that wasn't mm-hmm. even meant to be, like, part of a universe. Right. And, well, because it, was, it wasn't even supposed to be the same story continuing. Right, right. Correct, I mean, we, right? we, we like, talked about that yeah, last time. Right. It was just meant to be, like, different terrible things sure. happening on Friday the 13th. Yeah. But to have the idea and, like, look, it's ham-fisted in a lot of ways. It's not meant, it's meant for... A pimply, horny 15-year-old sitting in a dark theater, mm-hmm. eating his popcorn and drinking his, I don't know, whatever, knee-high or whatever the fuck you're <laughs> drinking in 1981. Uh-huh. You know, like, yeah. seeing some boobs, seeing some stabbings, and maybe, like, investing a little more artistry in it than just your run-of-the-mill slasher movie. 
And I don't know. Like, I think it's effective. That's a good idea. We should try to, like, for people that are familiar, we should try to start contextualizing these years a little bit. Like, what was going on during this time. I don't even know what Nehi is. I don't know where I even got that from. I don't think I've ever drank that. I think it's a soda. Yeah. Maybe it's a yoo They got a yoo Or a Slurpee or something. I don't know. I don't know. Like, look, I understand people not liking slasher movies. Like, I'm fine with that. But there are some slasher movies I like, though. Right, and there are some slasher movies that elevate the genre. Like, sure. there's... The, in any genre, there are things that are better than the sum of their parts or, like, their yeah. peers or whatever. But this movie is establishing, again, in my opinion, like, the most iconic horror villain of all time. I don't disagree with that. And is doing so in a way, I think, that's humorous sometimes. Like, I think it's funny. Like, we, we talked about this off air, but, like, there's a scene where Ginny is, like, hiding in a bush and jumps out and knees Jason in the balls. And he's like, whoa, and falls over. And it's just, it's funny. Like, he's an idiot. You know, he's not this force of nature. He's just a low intellect, deformed kid, like, running around stabbing people. That he, like, blames for the death of his mother. I don't know. I mean, there's not a whole, it's not like Shakespeare. It's not meant to be. Or Eugene O'Neill. Right. <laughs> Or Titus O'Neil. Right, right, that's true. (laughs) I don't... (coughs) I don't know. I... I actually actually finished that show (coughs) the night that I watched this. And yeah, that was a much more enjoyable experience than this. I I enjoy this movie. I think it's a fun movie. I think it's got some really good deaths in it. I think it's got some suitably attractive young ladies, if that's what you want to look at. Um, I think it's got one of the funniest, like, minor characters that dies, like, super early, which is the, um, the suave bedroomized guy that shoots the, uh, jock girl in the butt mm-hmm. with, um, his slingshot mm-hmm. and gets summarily, like, strung up in his throat slit. But, like, such a cretin, really, and it's, like, yeah. funny to me. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just... Okay. So, I want to talk really quick before we move into number two. Oh, right, yeah. I forgot. I would have thought that Friday... If you would have asked me a month ago what my favorite Friday the 13th movie was, I probably would have told you three. So, today, when I watched Friday the 13th Part 2, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to watch three like while I'm here so I don't have to watch it in a couple weeks for um, 1982's list. And let me tell you that Friday the 13th Part 3 is one of the worst movies I think I've ever seen in my life and I have no idea why I used to like it. Like, it is really dumb and really plotting and has so many unnecessary like plot twists that literally are there to do nothing but serve to get people killed and one of the most maybe the most unlikable character in any movie ever in like the country boy boyfriend that's there for like the girl like it creates this other mythology of like Jason, like, chased her through the woods and maybe kidnapped her and maybe nothing happened. Like, who knows? Like, it completely retcons, like, the entire thing. And it has the ridiculous 3D effects. So, like, everything is like, here's a stick at the camera. Here's my fist at the camera. So, like, I guess when you're watching it in 3D, because that was the gimmick of 3. Um, We will not be discussing Friday the 13th Part 3. thank God. (laughs) As a top five, because it is... Again, like, I'm ashamed of myself for liking that movie so much. So, yeah. Okay. 
So you're saved for at least like a couple months from having to see a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Good. Hey, I, I, I'm I'm appreciative of that. And honestly, I don't think four is going to. So make what are you? So, so you want to give me a sneak peek of what you're going to torture me with for the next month? Oh, I don't know. I don't okay. know. I'm not okay. really giving it. I, I have to. I have to pare down my list. Okay. Okay. So. Okay. Um. So you ready to move on to number two? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so at least with the next two movies, isn't this always the most unfortunate thing though? Is that like. I think there's so much contention early on in some of the movies that are on your list. By the time we get to one and two, it's like we get them done in like 20 minutes, 25 minutes and like don't spend much time on them because we both like them. And it's like, right. There's not like, I mean, that's, that's really only true on these lists. Maybe not. No, I don't I, know. I think it's pretty like standard actually. A lot well, because of times. like there's not a lot of like, cause we have, what it is is we have just similar enough tastes. I think. Right. That like, really good things we probably are going to agree on and things that are like maybe a little bit more open to taste and like how much we like them there might be disagreement on but it's usually like and usually the end goes pretty good yeah i mean i would i would argue that a lot of movies that go in the one and two spot on these lists are genuine like classics of cinema right unless we're doing like really like niche like genre lists or whatever and it's really hard Without, like, spoiling entire movies or just talking, like... Like, I don't want to, like, robotically go scene by scene and describe what's happening in a film. Like, I don't know, like, what interest there would be in that. So, honestly... (laughs) Honestly, um... I don't know. Like, you're talking about, like, hey, it's a great movie and it's these performances are great and the cinematography is great and brilliantly whatever. And then, like, what do you say? Sure. Agreed. That's actually why I like these horror lists because you're at least talking about stuff where the majority of the time we're going to be like in probably like the mid 50s and 60s in terms of like Rotten Tomato scores and plenty of people shitting on them. Right, right. Um, No, I do think that's one of the more interesting aspects of this is these movies would not be talked about uh, by a lot of people. Like, I don't think anybody out there is talking about The Prowler. I really don't. Like, there might be, like, a couple YouTube videos or something like that of people talking about The Prowler, potentially, but um, you don't see a lot of that. So, I do think this is interesting. So, one and two probably go pretty quickly here. Sure. Um, So, we'll go ahead and move on to number two on the list. So, number two on the list is Dead and Buried, directed by Gary Sherman, starring James Farentino, Melanie Anderson, and Jack Albertson. Rotten Tomatoes has it as a 75% from critics, a 58% oddly from audiences. So Frank, did you want to tell us about the premise of this movie and what you liked about it? Uh, So basically the movie takes place in a small New England coastal town, I guess. Um, Potter's Bluff. Um, There's a series of grisly murders that occur in what traditionally, from whatever the dialogue is, a quiet, unassuming town. Um, there's a photographer that's beaten and then set on fire, um, on a beach who survives and is later killed with a hypodermic needle through his eye in a pretty, pretty graphic and upsetting scene. I think if you're like, I don't know, queasy about eye injury, Mm -hmm. then there's a hobo, drunk hobo that's murdered. There's a family that's chased and killed in a... Hitchhiker that's killed. Uh, Sheriff Dobbs, who I guess in keeping with the theme of tonight is maybe one of the stupidest law enforcement agents like ever is, or not Sheriff Dobbs, um, Sheriff Gillis is tasked with trying to figure out who's committing these murders and why they're happening. 
He's assisted by a sort of creepy standoffish mortician named Dobbs, um, who also is kind of like the pathologist of the town. Um, as he investigates, he kind of becomes suspicious of his wife, who might be mixed up in witchcraft in some way. Becomes more suspicious of the other people in the town. To the culmination where it's revealed that Dobbs is actually discovered the secret to reanimating corpses and having them under his sway. Uh, Gillis buries his wife because he realizes his wife has been dead for a while. Is then pursued and mobbed by the other townspeople who are all reanimated corpses. And finally comes to Dobbs. And it's revealed that he himself is a reanimated corpse under the control of Dobbs the entire time. Very atmospheric, really dreamlike in the way that it's filmed. Some pretty good set pieces, I think, in terms of just tension in the way... The the photographer at the beginning, you know, it's, it's pretty gruesome when they tie him up and they burn him. Um, kind of comes out of nowhere with all these people because one of the, the one of the I guess signature parts of the deaths is that everyone the townspeople carry cameras and are fo like photographing the people as they're dying. <clears throat> so I think what you know you and I have talked about this off air and I describe it as an extended Twilight Zone episode sort of especially with the twist ending that the sheriff was dead the whole time. I think it's really effective in that regard. Maybe a tiny bit like overlong in that respect, but I forgive that by the fact that I think it's got some some pretty decent performances and it's really just beautifully shot in terms of the dark blues and the grays and the fog and the way that the town is filmed. Very claustrophobic feeling, especially when people are being chased. One really, in my opinion, one of my favorite scenes in the movie when the family is trying to get away from... It's the first time you realize, so the photographer from the beginning is burned, he survives, like, the attack and is then murdered by um, one of the townspeople in his hospital bed. And then you then see him again in the malt shop or whatever. He's the gas station attendant. And you realize at that point that these that there's, like, corpses coming back to life. So, really effective scene, especially with, like, a small child in peril of this family trying to escape this mob of people who are trying to kill him. And ultimately, you know, fail to escape, I guess. But just a really, really well done, creepy, I don't know, effective little horror movie. Uh, I think I hadn't, I knew nothing about this movie until maybe the mid-2000s when it was released as like a deluxe edition. This and Near Dark were released like simultaneously almost in these deluxe DVD collections, you know, with special features and commentary and whatnot in really nice like die cut boxes. And just really, I, I really enjoy it. I think it's, I don't think it stands out as being particularly innovative or the plot twist is a little contrived. And I think like upon multiple viewings, you kind of figure it out early on. Like you can see elements that sort of lend themselves to show that the sheriff is also being controlled mm -hmm. in a way, but effective and well done. And the scene at the end when, Dobbs has basically reanimated himself um, and is showing the film of the sheriff being murdered by his wife. And, you know, the film strip is rolling and the guy's like hands are decomposing in front of him. And Dobbs is almost like a Christ figure, like elevated above him with the light coming behind him. You know, like I can fix that for you if you want. Like, it's just really, really well done. Yeah. The, the last 20 minutes of this movie are extremely 
I think it's the best part of the movie overall is 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 him when he finally because he seems to be getting close and then it's like the closer he gets the further away he gets and throughout the movie which I think is extended maybe a little too long sure at times is that that element of it but by the time he actually gets to finding out I think the forcing him to watch the news like the I'm sorry like the camera footage and he watches the first time and he finds out that his wife is one of these part of the townspeople killing people and one of the reanimated corpses and then later comes back and sees the rest of the video of the person that she's killing is him and that he's also been yeah. reanimated i think that whole sequence is really well done and i think for an actor that i don't know whatsoever in farentino like um he does a really good job, I think, of selling his reaction oh, I agree. at times. Yeah, yeah. It might be a little bit melodramatic, but I think that the nature of this movie calls for some of that melodrama. And I think he does a really good job of selling that. And I think Jack Albertson as Dobbs really, in that last 20 minutes, like shines as like this... Uh, what do I want to say? This kind of gentlemanly, logical guy who, scientist who is trying to explain why this is the way it should be. And I think he does that extremely well because he is so genteel and nice and down home. And I think it comes off as really menacing. It is. It's a really effective performance. Yeah, Albertson's really good in that role. Um, Both as like the kind of old-timey coroner and then the kind of cult leader in some right. ways he's basically like a voodoo hogan at that point yeah. like with his army of you know like juju zombies or whatever um so i i said this about that one sequence in monster club and i i feel the same way about this movie that it it feels like you're watching a really good episode of those late night horror serials that used to be on like tales from the dark side and I think it builds the tension well. Agreed, like, you know, I said before, and, and you said as well, that it is a little long, and maybe there's some stuff you could take out of it. But I think the the murder sequences are really effectively done. The first one where he's flirting with the girl on the beach, and then she's, you know, take my picture, and then she takes her top off, and he's mesmerized by her, and then all of a sudden hit from behind by Robert England, and then beaten, and then when they're lashing him to the post, like, if... There's a thing, so, it's, again, it feels like it's inspired almost by, like, like Dunwich, like, the Lovecraft idea of, like, Innsmouth or whatever, like, Shadow Over Innsmouth, where it's sure. this idyllic seaside town with maybe a secret, and then the secret turns out to be much more horrific than you can imagine, and mm-hmm. especially with the reanimation of corpses and whatnot, that it feels very Lovecraftian it in does. that sense. Um, and it's really, it's it's played to good effect. You know, I think that one of the things I like the most about it, and I always find this surprising in a horror movie when it does it, is it doesn't hold anything back from you as the viewer. Like, the only thing that it holds back from you is that he's a reanimated corpse and his wife is a reanimated corpse. And even early on, you get the suspicion that his wife is doing some bad things. So that's mm-hmm. not even as much of a surprise. But it never holds back the fact that these people are doing terrible things. Right. And it almost, 
you sort of figure out pretty early on that Dobbs is definitely involved in some way mm-hmm. in having those things happen. And it's, I, I like a horror movie that doesn't, isn't condescending about that and also doesn't think that it's so clever that it's like hitting you with plot twists all the time. Like having like one really effective plot twist at the very end of a movie is a great way for a horror movie to end. And I think a lot of movies, you know, to the point of, we were talking about the beyond, you know, when we talked about both the Friday the 13th movies, like trying to do that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and whenever we talk about Shyamalan, like that's always like a major point you talk about. Cause that's like his calling card. But when a movie does it well, I think it leaves you with a good feeling. Like it was worth getting to that mm-hmm. point. Like all, everything that came before was worth it for like those shots. Well, sure. And I, one of the main criticisms of this movie, honestly, the main one, is that this doesn't really feel like a horror movie necessarily. It's just not very scary a lot of times. And I see where they're coming from with that. And I think the idea is that this is a mis- this is a mystery, right? That at its core, this is a this is a mystery film. With it doesn't turn into a horror to me until those last 20 minutes. Agreed. Like, there's killings in it. Like, and that's horrific, sure. It's but it, it's a graphic murder mystery. It Yes, that's a very good way to describe it. But I think that the thing, you're right, they don't condescend. You know something mysterious is going on. You know people are doing bad things and murdering people. And that there's some sort of, like, cult element to this town. And which is a, which is something I always really like. I'm always into the idea that there's like I think it's growing up in a small town. I don't know if you feel that way. That the idea of like there's darkness lurking under, and maybe that's because I grew up with stories of the clan and all these right. other things around here. That there's always darkness lurking under the idyllic nature of like the rural area. So it was the same like because we moved to this area when I was six, roughly, mm-hmm. um, from Baltimore. So coming from you know, an urban area to an absolutely rural area because back then the area we grew, we live, we currently live in and grew up in was incredibly rural with very little connection to the outside world. You would have those feelings like walking into a diner or going into a barber shop where people would like literally stop and look at you because you were a stranger. Mm -hmm. And while most of the time it was just like inbred bigotry and, you know, people are just generally like, suspicious assholes around here Mm -hmm. no offense to any resident of cecil county um it it, you know you you do get that feeling that maybe there's something else there like what were they talking about before you walked in and like to your point like i agree like it's really effective whenever a movie plays that up that you know what is the secret behind what these people are doing like why are they doing the things they're doing and i also i kind of like the fact that it's really not explained, like, why are they taking pictures until absolutely the very end of that movie? And it, it's right. it's this really effective, like, device during the murders of people, like, snapping, like, flashes at people. Mm-hmm. And, like, why is this happening until you finally figure it out? And I, I think that's really effective. And I think part of that comes from the fact that this was written, co-written by Dan O'Bannon, who's a pretty talented writer and director in his own right. But, you know, it's alien... Um, this movie, uh, some portions of heavy metal, um, Life Force, which is one of my like secret favorite 80s horror movies, um, Return of the Living Dead, which is one of my not-so-secret favorite 80s horror movies that he also directed. And I think he's just this really talented guy at understanding what's actually the appeal of the genre movie that he's making 
and really highlighting that appeal. And I think if you look at his movies, I think that he, he does that. I mean, also like Invaders from Mars and Total Recall. Which and, I love in that, that version of Invaders from Mars. I absolutely yeah, it's love. a fantastic movie. Yeah. And just... That was definitely one I grew up with. Just understanding how to like build the layers of a story to a climax. Yeah. Which again, when we we'll talk about this a lot over the next like nine weeks or however many weeks we have left. Or nine months or whatever. That a lot of movies don't know how to do that. They know how to get you to a point and then they just kind of fall apart. And I think that O'Bannon, you know, and especially in this movie, I think he knows how to get you to that point and then make that point worthwhile. Well, comparing it to some of the other movies on the list, I think the thing is, is it being a murder mystery to some degree that you know that these people are killing something. There's some sort of dark, mysterious, underground, underbelly to this town. It doesn't become a horror movie until the very end. And I think I think that's really clever in the idea that, okay, now it's kind of just like we're just waiting till the next death. It's, it's kind of like these other movies that are on the list that some that I'm complaining about even. Like, right. you know, Friday the 13th. We're just getting to the next death. Like, okay, now we get a little bit more exposition backstory. It's the same thing with Fulci. Like, a little bit more exposition, a little bit more backstory, a little bit more to the mystery. Another death. And he's slowly trying to, like, figure this out. And then... To me, it's one of the most horror, one of the most horrifying ideas on this entire list of this year is this idea that not only is your spouse a reanimated corpse, right, and then finding out that you yourself are a reanimated sure. corpse um, and are being controlled, I, I think that's a really horrifying concept, and I think it's a great build. It's like it's a it's a very typical horror movie with a mystery built into it until the end, then it becomes maybe one of the most horrific things that you can imagine. I mean, it's what's effective about movies like Blade Runner and honestly, like revisited in Total Recall, like what of your memories are your own, you know, did O'Bannon do Total Recall? Yeah. 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 Okay. What of your, like, what of your life is your own? And like, what if everything that you knew isn't real? Right. Um, yeah, I think, I think the horror turning point is when he runs into the villager and the arm is stuck in the grill of his car and then the villager steals it, like, obviously uninjured and runs off. Right. And you find out that it's, like, Mm -hmm. the corpse has been dead for at least four years or whatever the time frame is. But, yeah, I I, I like the idea that it's... It's a murder mystery that then evolves into something else. I think that's a really good... And and I think compared to The Prowler, I think the other thing I really like about this movie is that it... I think this. I think it uses the setting very well, mm-hmm. where that movie kind of established this kind of seaside town and then didn't use it. This uses it, I think, to really great effect. And it's like the the the, the ex like the the uh, oh, well, I can't remember the term for it, but the, the establishing shots. Uh, the establishing shots that are used here actually sometimes like especially the way he moves the camera uh, like down the street a little bit at times. It reminds me actually of uh, Reagan's ads. Uh, it's Morning in America again. Right. It, it reminds me of like those that kind of imagery at times that I think they're utilizing that small town feel in a really good way in establishing shots and where they're positioning people talking on the street. So you can see the church in the background. You can see sure. all the small shops like the barbershop in this place. And it gives you a feel of a real small town. Yeah, I agree with that. And really, yeah, just... Kind of a hidden gem, I think, and definitely like a cult classic in terms of 80s horror. I mean, again, like I knew nothing about this movie Mm -hmm. until I, I mean, this is, 
I was buying probably like 15 DVDs a week <clears throat> on average and just watching like everything. Um, but just something I found randomly, but really, really impressed with it. And it's, it definitely it's a solid, it's a solid movie. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not, it's not perfect. It has its flaws at times, but it's a good movie. Like a really good movie. What is, what is this? This is free on something, right? No. Not that I know of. I, I had to. Oh, hold on. Is this the one that I. No, I had to get this off Google Play. Hmm, I feel like I didn't pay for it. So it might be, it might be on one of your on one of the subscri- like maybe twenty thousand Prime. I think it's Shutter subscription. Actually, it's free on. Yeah. So if you subscribe to Shutter through Prime, the, Prow- the Prowler is free on Prime, right? But everything else I had to rent. So the Beyond is free on Shutter. Friday Thirteenth Part Two is free on Showtime, and Evil Dead I believe is free on Shutter as well. So mm-hmm. if you're into horror movies, Shutter is the way to go. I'm just saying. Well, I might have to subscribe to it for the next six ninety nine a month, buddy. Something like that. Who knows? It's, Who knows what things it's cost? It's going to be cheaper than renting, right, right? Yeah. Well, you don't know the price of milk. So. That's true. That's <clears throat> wrong. So, okay, you ready to move on to number one? Yep. Okay. Number one on the list is the nineteen eighty one Evil Dead, directed by Sam Raimi, starring Bruce Campbell, Ellen Sandweiss, Betsy Baker. Has a 95% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. Has an 84% from the audience. Uh, for the people that have, is probably the most known movie, maybe on this list, sure. I would think. Uh, do you want to go ahead and describe what the plot is and what you like about it so much? Uh, so Bruce Campbell plays Ash, um, who, along with four of his other friends, are going to a cabin in the woods in Tennessee. Um, they, the cabin is secluded. They have to go across this rickety bridge to get there. Uh, once there, they basically unleash, um, an elemental evil, sort of like another like Lovecraftian thing through like this book of the dead, um, by playing these audio tapes they find of this research scientist who is looking into like, whatever, like these evil otherworldly entities. Um, and then basically just unleash hell upon themselves, um, including the spirits of the dead, like possessing these spirits, possessing the dead bodies of their friends, like as they die and Ash basically having to fight off in ultimately like everything. Um, and then implied at the end that he does not succeed in that, um, filmed on a budget of like $90,000, I think, and really impressive in terms of its effects and absolutely. Raimi, in my opinion, revolutionized the horror genre in terms of filmmaking with this movie, just in the way that he films, like, his angles and his camera work. The fact that it it feels fresh, even, you know, 30-some years hence, like, you still feel tense watching the movie, and it's got this, a slight element, I wouldn't say of comedy, but of maybe, like, like Grand Wignol, like horror in the way the Deadites like mock mm. the other people and just how like extreme the gore is to it. Um, really like good performance by Campbell, like not quite as hammy, I guess, as like his later stuff once he became a cult icon, but you know, really incredibly memorable scenes, including like a rape by a tree, um, which is when I first saw it, the thing that I think like probably disturbed me the most, um, still, I think probably the thing that disturbs me. Yeah. It's, it's a sequence. And just the way that they film 
the unseen spirit moving around the outside of the house or the thing like peering in the window or this moment of calm humanity before like the glass crashes in and there's this creature menacing you. I mean, there's so many, so many times in the movie where you kind of feel like maybe the survivor surviving like members of the group have sort of regained some level of stability or sanity. And then it just all goes to shit again. Um, and it's kind of a slow build to it too. I mean, it's not a very long movie, but it takes its, it takes its time in a way that's not meandering or boring to build up to a climax. You know, that's ultimately pretty devastating in the sense that he has to murder like the woman that he loves or else like be murdered himself. And I don't know. It's really, I, I can't imagine that there's anyone that cares about horror movies that would be listening to like a podcast like this that hasn't seen Evil Dead, but it's easily like recommendable, I think, to anyone that has any interest in horror whatsoever. And again, like so many camera techniques that Raimi sort of pioneers in this movie that you see used repeatedly throughout like the rest of the 1980s and beyond into like modern day. Well, let me let me bring something up. It's the, it's the only piece of criticism that I found. I could at least maybe see where they were coming from, potentially. <clears throat> it's uh, John Larson from LarsonOnFilm.com. He says, A haunting specter is as good as an good of an excuse as any to have your camera hover and lurk and scurry and attack, presumably from the demon's point of view. So that's what we frequently get. Other shots are more inventive, including one that tracks along the floor of the cabin as a body is being dragged, first past another victim, then past a slightly ajar trap door to the cellar where one of the demon-possessed victims is clamoring to get out. Did Raimi fear he'd never get a chance to make another movie again? It's good stuff, but Raimi keeps piling on, including a distracting shot that travels 180 degrees over Ash's head. Piling on is also an apt way to describe the gore. Creeping and unnerving early on, it reaches unintentionally, unintent I think he probably meant unintentionally, comic proportions by the climax when the grisly dissolution of the demon-possessed bodies turns into an extended sequence all its own. I'm not averse to gore, but I appreciate it more as a storytelling tool than a defining element that it becomes here. So how do you feel about the idea that all of these different techniques he used, and there are really creative and like you probably revolutionary, I would say, like for the horror genre stuff that he's doing here at times. Right, like he's, he combines stop motion animation and... Yeah, the tracking shots and yeah, and the the tracking shots, the the inventive pans that he does. Right. He's using um, a lot of Dutch angles, Dutch a angles, of, a lot like of really low, yeah. like menacing, especially from like the point of view of like when they lock Cheryl, I guess, in the basement or whatever. Mm -hmm. and... Yeah, he he's he's doing everything, and and from what I've read about the making of this movie, it's like he has he had storyboards that he had created for. And then he gets to the place that they're filming in Tennessee, I think it is, and basically just goes crazy. Like where he's all of a sudden they didn't know what the hell he was doing because 
he had it storyboarded out and now he's just changing, oh no, I'm going to film it from this angle or no, like actually let's go ahead and make this and we're going to like kind of like pan around this way and and then have like run, having people running with cameras attached to sticks, right. you know, to get certain shots and it's like he kind of just like starts. So how do you feel about the idea that he's piling on too many techniques in one movie? I don't know. I think that's a dumb... It doesn't feel like that uh-huh. when you watch it. I mean, I don't. I'm not a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like to be in that position. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine that if you have a vision and you have unfettered control over that vision, that maybe you do kind of go a little crazy in what you're doing. And maybe you are thinking like, maybe you are thinking I'm never going to be able, this might be my only chance to do these things that I have in my head and trying to get them out. Mm. But I I think that Sam Raimi later in his career, when he became a more mainstream director, succumbed, succumbed, succumbed to like some excess in style over function, right? Like I think that he a little, like Spider-Man 2, for instance, with the Doc Ock tentacle scene, basically uses the technique that he, you know, innovated in Evil Dead. And it's just so jarring. And it's it's not interesting because it takes you out of the actual action because it's more about, look how cool my camera work is. But I don't ever feel that in the Evil Dead. Like, I feel... Because it's so relentless once it gets to a certain... Like, once, once that hatch, the basement blows open and they are hearing about the Book of the Dead and Cheryl, like, runs out into the woods. It is relentless after that, right? And so all of those camera techniques and all of that quote-unquote excess is a means to an end to advance, to make, to number one, to make you feel uncomfortable. Yes. And to I push... Think it's, I think he's trying to induce the mania right. that they're feeling. And it's because, like, you know, they, they switch the angles so much. And the fact that, like... The fact that the monsters are at simultaneously 100% monstrous and so human that it makes you really uncomfortable the first time you see it. And even upon subsequent viewings, it's really difficult to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, and even when they're like melting at the end, I mean, there's a horror to the fact that... Because there's the one scene where... I think it's Cheryl, or maybe it's the one that ends up getting chopped up. Um turns back into herself again and looks up and is like, you know, you can't do this to me and I love you. Mm -hmm. And then turns back into the demon and like those kind of things, like that's a, like to your point about dead and buried, like that's a terrible thing to think about Mm -hmm. is like, what do you do if someone who you love is in a position where like, if you don't kill them, they're going to kill you. And even at the end when he like is leaving the cabin and the spirit like grabs him and drags him into the woods, which has been established, the woods aren't going to let you leave. You know, that's, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I, this, this is probably going to sound stupid when I say it, but I'm making a distinction between the idea of movie and film here when I say this and the distinction is, Maybe it'll make sense when I say it, but I I think I can recognize this because it's a fault of my own. What this guy is doing is that I think he's watching the film so much that he's missing the movie. Right. 
and, and I know that's a problem with me sometimes where I get so caught up in the actual process of the script and the dialogue and the filmmaking technique sometimes I'm missing the actual story that's being told because yeah. I'm so focused on watching it as a film and I don't think that you can I think you can do that I can watch this as both a I watch this as a movie when I watch it this time and I thought it was very effective mm-hmm. and if I went back and watched it as a film I could do that, and I would still argue that I think it's very effective. I think he's it's very conscious choices that are being made by Raimi in order to try to get the viewer to feel the kind of horror and mania and disturbing nature of... The hopelessness the, of the ho- situation. Yeah. Because uh, uh, Ash laughs at one point towards the end, doesn't he? Yeah, he he's like he's quote unquote maybe, snapped or whatever. Sure, I guess. and and it's like that's that's what that camera work feels like in right. some ways. Yeah, maniacal. I would yeah, say yeah. that's right. Um, so I, I do think it's very intentional. I think if, what either way I was looking at it, but I think that's what this reviewer has probably done is he's focusing too much on the filmmaking aspects of it rather than just letting it wash over you, letting a movie and feeling it as opposed to studying it. To, to me, a film. I, I find it very easy to suspend my disbelief when I watch movies. Mm-hmm. Like I am, I get I don't know what it is. Like I I love watching movies so much that it's so it's easy for me just to like let myself watch a movie, and then think about it later and kind of think about things maybe I didn't like about it, but in the moment like enjoy a movie. Sure, and it's it's true that there's certain it depends on circumstance for it me. Does. But I agree. That's true. Movie theater is easy to do. There's certain fourth wall breaking elements that will drag me out of a movie immediately. There's certain times where I feel something's being a little too tongue-in-cheek, where it's maybe counterintuitive to the overall tone of the movie that I don't like sometimes. Um, but I don't find that here. Like, I think yeah. I, I think there's a little more tongue-in-cheek in Evil Dead 2 than there is in so, this movie. So, as before you get into that, uh, I, there's one question I want to ask you, is that I read a lot of people talking about claiming this was a spoof, this movie. It, like, has these spoof elements to it. And do you agree with that? No. Okay. I don't. I, I don't see it. Let me tell you something. that I They might I, be confusing Evil Dead 1 and 2, or the first one and the second one, maybe. Because the second possible. one definitely is a spoof. But I, I remember this movie. The, you were not allowed to rent this movie in video stores in this area if you were under 18 years old. Right. Like, this was a movie that was... Like, when you would try and rent it, they would tell your parents, like, you shouldn't let your kid watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And the first time I saw it, I was maybe... Maybe 10 or so. I don't know. Like, I was pretty young. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it, it was pretty horrifying. And I right. never, like, it, this movie has never made me laugh. Or no. Evil Dead 2 has some moments where, like, I chuckle. Like, I, it's, it's definitely over the top. And you're supposed to kind of laugh at it. And definitely by the time they get the Army of Darkness. Like, Army of Darkness is a parody of everything that came before it. But this movie is... And this man legitimately attempting to make... I have a feeling we're going to be talking about Evil Dead 2 as my yeah, guess. Right? Okay, yeah, okay. So, well, we won't talk about it now then, so... You know, you know what? You know, so, to this guy's point, whatever this man's name is... Mm-hmm. John Larson. Josh Larson, sorry. Think about this in the same context as um, El Mariachi, right? Because mm-hmm. it's the same thing. It's yeah. a person who just loved movies so much and wanted to make a movie so badly that 
they just wanted to do whatever has been in their head forever. Like mm-hmm. thinking about, oh, if I ever can make a movie, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do right. that. And I think El Mariachi is effective in the same way. You know, mm-hmm. can can you kind of see like, I don't know, like the strings behind it a little bit? Or can you kind of see like maybe a little bit of like amateurishness to it? Because it's a first movie. Sure. So, I mean, it's that's not fine. without its missteps. There's there's some directorial missteps I think at times. There's some editing missteps yeah, that happen with it. Like there there's stuff there. Don't don't get me wrong. But this is a really good movie. But I you know and I made the point earlier that we're talking about B movies, right? And so like we shouldn't look for things to be elevated. But this is definitely a movie that I think is elevated sure. above the genre, just for sheer innovation and effectiveness. I think it's because of those directorial choices in some ways it right. elevates itself. Yeah, I mean I don't. I, I honestly, I have no criticism of this movie. I think this movie is like a masterpiece of the horror genre. And I would, probably the, anything I would I would say would be nitpicking to some yeah. degree. I mean, it's not worth it. It's a, it's a really it's it's the best movie I've seen since only it's only been two years that we've covered so far. It's certainly the best out of those two years to me. It's probably going to know. It's it's one of the it's one of my like top twenty horror movies of all time, right. easily. Yeah. So I don't know, like one of the best movies in my opinion. Yeah. Maybe of the eighties in total, because it feels so timeless. Like when you watch it, I agree. You don't I think feel it held like, up till today's standards. Like when you watch Dead and Buried, and I think that's a really well filmed movie. There's a lot of things that feels dated about it. Sure, like it feels like you're watching an eighties horror movie. Same with The Prowler. Same with yeah. Friday the Thirteenth. Sure. I mean, The Beyond is a fever dream, obviously. So mm-hmm. like that takes place out of time, but that was sarcasm. Um. Or mockery of your criti- of the person's criticism. I don't know. Like it just it, it feels like it could you you that movie could be released today and be just as effective and would be hugely popular, and probably not even filmed as well because it would have way too much technology. It would. It. Like the fact that I, everything the, the in that movie. Of this movie are this is the one that I was talking about. Besides Savini's effects, I thought for the budget they oh, had, right. the effects in this are really good. Yeah, it's like all those practical effects yeah. and the fact that they figured out that we're going to strap a camera to a board. And then run along the ground to disorient you and make you feel like this thing is rushing at the protagonist or whatever. It's just, it's brilliant. It is. So yeah, I, uh, no, I, I don't, I don't have much to say like in terms of negatives about this movie. I think it really holds up really well, even by 2019 standards. Agreed. Yeah. I I, I love this movie. Um, there would probably be younger people that probably disagree, like, you know, I'm sure, like, you know, about that statement. But I, I still think it holds up to the day where a lot of these movies I'm not so sure about you know, holding up 30, you know, plus, plus the fact. Later. So here's one more thing that I want to say about it and then we can be done. Yeah. He's so brilliant in the sense that he sets it in such a small space. Yes. Like, even though it's a cabin in the woods, mm-hmm. because they destroy the bridge early on, so there's no other way they can get out. And it's this enclosed, and it's dark, so you don't really see much beyond the fog and the trees. Because it's so enclosed, it's almost like theatrical, it's almost like, not theatrical, but um, yeah, theatrical. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, like a stage, stage play, play yeah. in that respect. And it's more about the human element of dealing with this unfathomable catastrophe or whatever situation they're in. It's like the living dead. I mean, to some degree, like it's it's, it's sure. very similar. Like in closed spaces, right? You know, you're dealing with the human elements, but also with, it goes beyond that in the sense of like people actually being possessed as opposed yeah. to being possibly turned into zombies. But it's very similar in that staginess. Sure, with that, a little less social commentary, but 
Sure. Uh, no, like no special commentary. Really. Right. Yeah. Um, but but it's still a really effective horror yeah. movie. Fan, it's it's a fantastic yeah. film. Yeah. Okay. So, um, any final thoughts on any of these movies, Frank? No. Again, like I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. Um, it's really good for me to go back and watch movies that kind of formed my love for movies in the first place. Like it's it's a good feeling to watch the stuff and. It's even better when they kind of stand up over time, where I still feel like, yeah, you know, I still really like this movie. So, yeah. Um, so that's going to be our episode for the week. Just so you know, what we have coming up next week, we'll be taking a break. In two weeks, we'll be coming back on the twenty second uh, with friend of the podcast Aiden Boyer, who will be back, returning our first returning guest to do the Third Man series, and we will be looking at the best Spike Lee movies. Really excited for that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I am too. Um, I, I've started those, and yeah, I'm really excited to talk about his filmography overall, and particularly those two movies. So we'll be doing that on the 22nd of February. When we come back in March, the first episode that we'll be doing in March is we will be doing the top five 1980s fish out of water comedies because we had a request from. Um, another listener, Amy Shea, on doing more comedy movies. So we're going to go ahead and start trying to fit some of those in. Then we will be doing, after that, another Third Man series with a friend of the show, Jason Heaster, where we will be doing another Third Man series with Bill Murray movies. So we'll be looking at the best of Bill Murray. And then later on that month, we will be doing the top five 70s crime movies. And uh, and then we will end that month with uh, the return to this series uh, that's going to go on for 10 months, which is the 1982 list of top five B-horror movies. So that's our plans for the next uh, five weeks. And uh, again, if you wanted to get a hold of us or offer up your own ideas for lists, well, you can contact us at our Facebook page, Two Guys Five Movies. You can also contact us on our Gmail address, Two Guys Five Movies at gmail.com. And please leave feedback. Uh, we love, we would love to get feedback from anybody on anything whatsoever that you want have to say about the podcast. Uh, we we can't improve on anything or unless we hear back from you. So everybody, have a good night, have a good weekend, and be safe. Thanks for listening.